Would you please pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorified in your sight, for you, O God, are our rock, and you are our redeemer. Amen. We received a card last month from our realtor, one of the few faithful card givers in my life. Every birthday, I'm guaranteed three cards, one from my parents, one from my in-laws, and one from my realtor. How she keeps up with all these dates and anniversaries is completely beyond me. But this card was sent marking the three-year anniversary of moving into our little home, a sweet mid-century ranch on the Wheaton-Winfield border that we bought from a woman named Loretta in her 80s who had lived there since the 60s. We knew we wanted to make some changes. As someone who loves to cook, the kitchen was the first thing on my list. We had an apartment-sized stove oven that could only fit two pans on the range and an oven door that would not open without a ferocious pull that was giving my bicep some amazing definition. There was a drop ceiling and fluorescent lighting and wood paneling, all things that we felt needed to go, putting our own spin on this new home. Thank God we had help. But as new homeowners, we were blissfully unaware of the chaos that a kitchen renovation could cause. Taking off paneling to discover enormous human-sized holes within the drywall. Removing a drop ceiling to discover a light fixture that was being held up by a coat hanger. Ingenious, maybe, but also unsafe. We would wake up and paint and peel and prime. We would go to church and come home and put in more hours. Soon our excitement turned to exhaustion, which bred frustration and bitterness. Why was I always the one washing the paintbrushes? And why would you never grab the things I needed when you went to the basement? Tensions were high and tempers were short. One day, my husband Dan came to me confessing how hard this time was, how awful it felt to be spread so thin. And he'd been reflecting on a quote he found by Elder Passius of Mount Athos, a Greek Orthodox monastic, who said, grumbling begets grumbling and praise begets praise. We had been grumbling about what we did and the other didn't, our hearts becoming beds of frustration. And we made a commitment to move towards praise for one another, for this weird, wacky house that we were privileged enough to own, for the help that we'd had in such a project. And while we don't do it perfectly, and goodness knows with a baby in the mix, we have our moments of grumbling, we find ourselves coming back to this quote and reminding ourselves that grumbling begets grumbling, and praise begets praise. Paul is reminding the Thessalonians here of what they want to be committed to, of who they are. They are children of the light that is God's love, God's justice, God's way in the world. When he says, let us keep awake and be sober, 
Paul is calling the people not to some form of teetotalry, but to be aware of the world around them, to be intentional and thoughtful in their words and actions. But let us be honest. There are moments when the grumbling takes over and where we feel in the darkness longing for the light, when the chaos and the uncertainty strikes, when resonances, resources are scarce and life itself feels threatened, and when the world seems to be burning around us. It was a ghost town. Trash lay in what were the once streets. No one was out and about. Written on a green chalkboard in one of the upstairs classrooms was in neat handwriting these words. September 2nd, 2005, 9.15 a.m. We are sorry for the school, but the shelter was a blessing. We had to bring over 200 people here with no help from any Coast Guard boats. People died and are still in their homes. We had to leave them. Thanks to Mickey, McKinley, Eric, Phil, Tyrone, Carl B. We saved the whole project. This green chalkboard remained in a school on the lower quarter of New Orleans. An echo of the pain that place knew only six months before. This scene is from Rebecca Solnit's book, A Paradise Built in Hell, in which she explores how communities respond in the face of disaster. Our media and our movies portray a world that is chaotic and violent. Images of Mad Max or the Hunger Games or maybe some recent political advertising come to mind that grumbling of the world leading to grumbling within ourselves, hardened hearts, where the great they of the world aren't doing it right or enough, and where we have to protect us and ours at any cost. But what Solnit found was quite different. This myth of grumbling was proven false time and time again in the face of disaster. Instead of turning inward in the midst of the chaos, folks turned outward to care for one another, sharing resources, risking safety for the good of others, literally saving their communities in the face of the worst that life could throw. In the midst of fires and floods and earthquakes and bombings, Solnit found that folks turned not to themselves but to their neighbors and, their and other strangers. These folks were truly living as Paul called the Thessalonians to live, clothed with the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. They were living as God's beloved, people of light, in the face of the chaotic hopelessness of their world. How little we know writes author Geraldine Brooks of how the people we live amongst. Her novel, Years of Wonder, follows an English village in 1665 as a textile merchant from London becomes mysteriously ill after coming to this little village with what became known as the Great Plague of London. The village together decides to quarantine for one year to help save themselves and others from the spread of the disease. 
but this is far from a utopic view of human relations. Two women are condemned as witches and accused of bringing the disease to the village and they're murdered by the townsfolks. There is selfishness and judgment and pain that breeds more selfishness and judgment and pain. The grumbling begetting grumbling. The plague is one villain within the story, but the hardened hearts of the villagers is another. These folks finding themselves in that darkness. This summer, with a little one who has ever-changing and demanding needs, nap, change, feed, entertain, tummy time, music, walk, bounce, sing, walk, book, walk again, on a several-hour rotation, I found myself not to focus on the books that I had hoped to read. Now, I don't know what it says about me that I had some misguided notion that during my parental leave, I would be able to read a stack of books that sat by my bedside. Maybe it speaks of my own naivete and how I underestimated that our life would drastically change when our daughter was born. But since I was not able to read the books, the amount of focus no longer existing in my mind, I subscribed to the New Yorker. And as I fed or rocked, I read short stories and poetry and satire. And one piece has struck with me, stuck with me. Its contributors write these reviews. They write, what a farce. I'm a church-going Christian who prayed every day of her adult life and then I got here to find a place overrun with seemingly anyone who didn't kill a million people. Sorry, Stalin, Hitler, and Pol Pot. You're not welcome here, but apparently everyone else is. Come on in. Yesterday, I saw Al Goldstein. Ugh. Another review writes, I'm not a fan of the pearly white color scheme. And still another, I'm only giving one star because no stars is not an option. Right from the start, it seemed really unorganized. I worked my entire life in event planning, and trust me, they could all do with some additional training. When I arrived, they showed me in, no registration or anything, and it was like I was left on my own to figure out eternity. I went up to one angel and said, so what do you do here? And she said, whatever you want, which is really no answer at all when you think about it. Now, while these one-star Yelp reviews of heaven might be funny, I cannot help but wonder if I would write such a review. And if I'm honest, on my days, I sometimes would. Grumbling begets grumbling, and praise begets praise. We find ourselves settling into the long haul of winter ahead. And I cannot help but wonder, what kind of community are we? I can feel myself grumbling, bulking, honestly scared about what's to come. I find myself a little heartbroken. There are only six people who've ever held our daughter. The community I dreamed of helping to raise her seemingly impossible at this point. I want the world to be different. I want magic wands waved, but here we are. 
And while so much is uncontrollable, we also have to ask ourselves what is in our power. Not that we deny or dismiss our real grief, our anxiety, our pain, that in the face of this, how can we not turn inward like those people in that little village in England in, 19, in 1665? But how can we, like the people in Solnit's book, how can we face the hard realities of the world, a, little, a literal hell for many, and instead of choosing to turn inward, how can we choose to be builders of paradise? How can we? St. Paul tells us, now as he told the Thessalonians thousands of years ago, since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. And he goes on, Therefore, encourage one another. Build up each other, as indeed you are doing. So maybe in the weeks and months ahead, we too draw the breastplate of faith and love, and for the helmet, the hope of salvation. And with this strength, may we build up each other, building paradise in the struggle letting our praise beget praise, especially now. Amen.